following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, Hebrews chapter 13. Let's start reading in verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you, I will always be by your side. Because of this promise, we may boldly say, the Lord is my help, I won't be afraid of anything. How can anyone harm me? So this isn't the first time the subject of money and possessions has come up in the book of Hebrews. Let's go back to chapter 10, starting in verse 32. The writer says, think back to the days after you were first enlightened, that is, you first understood who Christ was and gave your life to him. You understood who Jesus was when you endured all sorts of suffering in the name of the Lord, how you cheerfully accepted the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have a far greater and more enduring possession in Christ. Remember this. Do not abandon your confidence, which will lead to rich rewards. So this will be fun this Sunday. Uh, last Sunday we talked about sex. This Sunday we're talking about money. Uh, there's, well, anyway, these two topics can be tense because both of them were kind of stepping on toes, I think, for all of us. The two very powerful forces in our life are two very powerful drives in some sense. And I find it interesting that the writer of Hebrews uh, brings this up and where he places it. So the first thing to note is this. The, the money is talked about in the Bible more than, I believe, any other topic. Almost half of Jesus' parables were about the topic of money. Ten percent of the Gospels deal directly with money. The Bible has a little over 500 verses on prayer, a little under 500 verses on faith, and 2,000 verses of money and possessions, and that's not including just even stories that talk about where we ought to put this in our life. So it's clearly important. So like I said last week, we talked about sex, because that's what the verse was about in Hebrews. The very next verse now is about money. And what's interesting is that if you go through the New Testament, these two topics are often placed right next to each other. I'll give you four more examples. Well, uh, actually just four total. So Hebrews 13, verse 4 to 5, first we said keep the marriage bed pure, then we read stay free from the love of money. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 talks about the sexually immoral and the greedy. Ephesians 5, 3 says don't let there be a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. Colossians 3, 5 uh, gives a list of things that people were saved from, and it included sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And 1 Corinthians 6 puts uh, greed first. You cheat and do wrong. Or it puts money issues first. There's sexual immorality that you deal with. You're thieves and you're greedy. Over and over in the New Testament, these two topics are placed very close to each other. And I don't think that's accidental. And I, I think here's the connection. When we take what is not ours to take, we are greedy thieves. When we take what's not ours to take, it's a sign that we're greedy for something, and if we take it and it's not ours, that makes us a thief. So if we take something that is not ours, we are greedy thieves. So we talked last week about what it looks like um, when we take what is not ours to take in the realm of sex. And just to give a real short recap, if we take what is not ours to take in the realms of sex, we are greedy thieves. Well, now it moves immediately into money because that's what we typically think of when we think of greed. 
So we can take money or we can take purity. In both cases, if it's not ours to take, we are thieves. We could take things or we can take innocence. We could take material things. We could take immaterial things. I would summarize it this way. When we take what is not ours in one area of life, odds are good we'll be inclined to take what is not ours in another area of life. That's why I think the Bible, the biblical writers connect these pretty closely. Uh, I, I believe the Bible sees our lives as a unified story, just like the Bible is a unified story from start to finish. Our lives are unified. What happens in one area of our life is going to spill over and affect another area of our life. And I think because God is wise and he gives wisdom to the writers of Scripture, we see these two things often placed close together. And I think it's to make us think more seriously about what greed looks like in our life, what it looks like to know what has been given to us that is rightfully ours and what is not. Or as we're going to talk about today with the case of money, what we do then with what has been given to us in terms of generosity, which is a different discussion than the sexual part of our life. But I think it's probably a biblical hint that when it comes to issues of money and it comes to issue of sex, these are two very powerful forces and they're connected with each other. And what begins to characterize our sense of walking in the path of life in one of those areas is probably going to have an impact on the other. So we take both of them very seriously, recognizing they're formative across different areas of our life. So the Bible says a greed is idolatry. It's when we put something in place of God. There was a number of years ago, I think there was a magazine named Harper's, but I'm not sure about that. I couldn't find it this week. They had a contest to do an ad campaign for the seven deadly sins. And it's hard to find online, and I'm not sure why. I don't know if they've archived it and hidden it. But I did find their advertisement that somebody submitted for Mammon. So understand, what they were doing was hiring advertising firms to take the seven deadly sins and make them look compelling. Like, how strong is advertising is kind of the question. So here was their ad for Mammon or money. The guy speaking says, I need a belief system that serves my needs right away. Dean Sachs has a mortgage, a family, and an extremely demanding job. What he doesn't need is a religion that complicates his life with unreasonable ethical demands. Spiritual providers in the past have required a huge amount of commitment, single deity clauses, compulsory goodness, and a litany of mystifying mumbo-jumbo. It's no wonder people are switching to mammon. Mammon isn't the biggest player in the spiritual race, but our ability to deliver on our promises is unique, and our moral flexibility is unmatchable. Mammon, because you deserve to enjoy life guilt-free. It's a great twist. Well, actually, this isn't even a twist. It's actually a great reflection of what Jesus said in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. Going to have to make a choice. So let's talk a bit today about how to see and use money as Christians. So point number one, money is from God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 19. Every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and has given him power to use it and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. The Bible's not anti-money. The Bible's not anti-money. 
Uh, if any of you came to the uh, meeting after the service last week when Jean was talking about the needs in Haiti, I sat there thinking, I wish I had a lot more money so I could help someone not starve. I mean, frankly, your money goes to help people not starve. And anybody else in the room kind of feel that way? Like, man, I wish I had a lot more. Okay, listen, the kingdom of God needs money. And what I mean by that is not like God can't do his work without money. But when the kingdom of God has money, we can take care of those in our midst. We can take care of people in our community. We can spread the gospel more effectively if we have the means to send people or get material there. There's missionaries that we all know who could use more money from us so they could spend their time preaching the gospel instead of having to raise money to support themselves. We could use more orphanages. We could use more Christian schools. We could... The list is huge of the good things that Christians can accomplish in this world if they have money. So hear me clearly, the Bible is not anti-money. If God has given you the ability to make money hand over fist, please make money hand over fist. The world needs Christians who are loaded, not so they can keep it, but so they've got a ton of money to invest in kingdom work all around them. Okay, so the Bible's not anti-money. The Bible's anti-greed. The Bible is clear, and we'll continue to talk about this. God doesn't give you money for you. God gives you money for his kingdom. You're a steward, which brings me to point number two. We are stewards. Matthew 25, we read this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Note something right away. And while I think this parable is intended to be a, a parable about spiritual gifts and talents that God gives us, they're making a very practical example, so we're going to run with it. Not everybody is going to be given the same thing. The goal in the kingdom of God is not necessarily that we all have five talents. It's clear right here. They were all given something, each based on their uh, ability. So we don't look around in the church at other people and go, well, that's hardly fair. They've got that much, and I've only got this much. What we do is we surrender that part of our life to God and go, okay, God, you're more wise than I am. Give me what matches my ability they give me wisdom to use it for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. So there's no room in the church to look around at others and be envious of what God has given them. They might have a particular ability with money that we don't have. A practical example, my wife and I handle money very differently, which is why my wife handles money in our family. You gift me with a lot, I don't know if that's going to be a good thing. I just... Being real with you here, I feel like I would squander a lot of it. I feel like I would. My wife wouldn't. She's disciplined. So God matched us up so that our marriage is characterized. Now, our relationship is, by the grace of God, over years, more and more characterized by Sheila's good stewardship of money versus Anthony's prolific kind of, hey, there's fried chicken. Let's buy it. Right? So in some ways, there's, I believe it's in Proverbs... And I don't have this verse printed out in my notes today, so I might not get this perfect. Don't hold it against me. One of the prayers is something like this. God, don't give me so much that I forget about you, but don't give me so little that I curse you. 
right? There's this sweet spot, and it's probably going to look different for each of us. How much can we have before we begin to forget about God? How little can we have before we begin to curse God? I, I don't know what that looks like in all of our lives. So we, we suspend judgment on the people around us, but we're stewards. Let's keep going. Uh, the one with two, I'm sorry, the one with five talents went and traded with them, made another five. The one with two gained two more also, but the one who received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. To those who use well and what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. It's just a reminder that God gives us things to steward. We want to steward them well. We won't be given the same, but our, our goal is to take care of it and help it to flourish, not for our financial richness and comfort, but for the growth of the kingdom of God, to invest in what God is doing in the world. So money's from God. We're stewards. Number three, money has the potential to be destructive. I'm just going to read through a number of verses here. How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. The love of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word of God, and we become unfruitful. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. That's our text today. He that trusts in riches will fail. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. So the Bible's not anti-money. If God gifts you with money, awesome. But the Bible gives caution over and over again. Be very, very careful. Money can be a trap. It can go so far as leading you to wander away from the faith. Money, money is a tool. It's just a thing God gives us to use for his glory and purposes, not something to wrap our lives around. And if we're wondering if it's becoming a problem, I, I like how Tim Keller puts it. How do you know that money isn't just money to you? Here's some of the signs. You can't give large amounts of it away. And by large amounts, I'm talking percentage-wise about what we have. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you, even though you might have worked harder or might be a better person, and it gets under your skin. And when that happens, you have one foot in the trap because it's no longer just a tool. It's a scorecard. It's your essence, your identity. No matter how much money you have, though it's not intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to keep you from God. So the Bible warns us about it. But then, point number four, the Bible also talks about the incredible potential for good. I'm reading now from 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, my brothers, we must tell you about the grace that God had given to the Macedonian churches. Somehow, in most difficult circumstances, their joy and the fact of being down to their last penny themselves produced a magnificent concern for other people. I can guarantee that they were willing to give to the limit of their means, yes, beyond their means, without the slightest urging from me or anyone else. In fact, they simply begged us to accept their gift of supporting their brothers in Christ. Nor was their gift, as I must confess I had expected, a mere cash payment. Instead, they made a complete dedication of themselves, first to the Lord and then to us as God's appointed ministers. I don't want you to read this as an order. It's only my suggestion, prompted by what I have seen in others of eagerness to help. 
And here is a way to prove the reality of your love. Here is a way to prove the reality of our love. Do you remember the generous grace of Jesus Christ, the Lord of us all? He was rich beyond our telling, yet he generously became poor for your sakes so that his poverty might make you rich. So there's our theological foundation. We have a Savior who models this. He was rich beyond telling, and he generously became poor so that his poverty might make us rich. Now, we're not Jesus. We don't pass on the same kind of riches, but it's a model, right? If we're looking to have our lives look like or mirror the life of our Savior, part of what we are called to do is take the richness of what God has given us and spill it out in the use of others. It's another thing we commemorate when we do communion, being broken and spilled out. Not exactly like Jesus did, but in memory of what Jesus did. And, and I'll get to this at the end, but here's a little preview. We can be given riches in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's other things. But in everything that we have been given, where we have a wealth, we are called as Christians as a sign of our love to be generous, to become, in a sense, poor for the sake of others. So generosity is a gift of grace. We can be a blessing from God to others by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we, have, when we see other people in need and we have resources to take care of it, I believe the biblical call is to be generous and to do it joyfully. God loves a cheerful giver. God's not looking for a begrudging giver, but I'll get to this in a minute. It's probably not a bad spiritual discipline to learn how to give even when you're begrudging, but that's not the goal in the kingdom of God. The goal is that we become the kind of people who give generously and joyfully. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, all the believers, and this is the early church now, were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, no, this isn't a government mandating communism or socialism. That's a whole different thing. This is a covenant community, which we talked about last week, engaging what I would call communalism. It simply means that if we enter into this new family, this new covenant, and now we're doing church with our brothers and sisters in Christ... Now, we have family obligations, and one of those family obligations is to look out for each other and give from the wealth that we have into the poverty that others are experiencing, and money is a super practical way to do it. I'm a little concerned when I get to the end and I talk about other things we can give. I'm a little concerned we can look at the other things and go, I'm perfectly happy to give those. Friends, I think God wants your money. Can I say that any more pointedly? God demands the surrender of our money. We have to do it. It's it's giving up one of the biggest potential idol makers in our life. And so what we see in the early church is that the believers were in one heart and one mind. They weren't of one bank account, but they were of one heart and one mind. And what that meant was when the people in the community saw other people in desperate financial need and they realized, I can meet that need, they met the need. I don't know 
it precisely what it looked like because I, I haven't found records of what that meant. Did they sell extra houses? Did they sell cows? I, I don't know what particularly that meant, but what I know is clear here, but they shared, they distributed to people as they had need. I mean, we do this in a small way with our funds that the deacons manage here at the church. Um, but the impression I get in reading early church history is that this was something that's probably hard to wrap my mind around, and I suspect if I were to live in the first century church, I'd be angry a lot of the time. Like, seriously? I can't stay in my deck? Yeah, because your, your neighbor's kids are skipping a meal a day because they don't have food. Oh, well, they should go to the government. Um, Anthony, do you, do you have money? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, there's just people in our church, they don't have a car. I wonder who could help them. Do you have money? I can't buy their whole car. How much can you buy? There's this person over here, they, they can't make their house payment. They're losing their mortgage. They're sick. They can't work. Oh, um, well, I'll pray for them. Sure, fine. Bring your wallet to prayer time. You with me on this? The Bible's really clear about this. this. This is a hard teaching, not because it's a complex teaching, but because it's a daunting teaching. Because what that means is we have to look at the things in our life and ask this question. When I see a need arise, first in the body of Christ, but then also around me, and God has given me provision and resources where I could meet that need, even to a small degree. What is my tendency? Is my tendency to go, awesome, kingdom opportunity. Or is my tendency to go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pray that someone with more than me gets on their radar. They're better situated to take care of it than I am. They may be. But that doesn't let us off the hook. That's, my prayer isn't for God to convict others. My prayer is for God to help me understand what it looks like to surrender my finances to the kingdom of God. There's a Christian ethicist named Lewis Smead. He wrote a book called Mere Morality. He says it this way, much depends on the answer to these three questions for Christians when it comes to money. Is it fair? Do we care? And do we share? If we obtained it unfairly, if we don't care for it responsibly, and if we refuse to share it with others, we're in as much danger for keeping as a thief is for taking. Point number five, generosity is meant to be an act of worship, not a legalistic transaction followed by angry, begrudging givers. So if you go to our new website, this is the paragraph that starts out what we've written on our giving page. The act of giving is first and foremost an act of worship. We give back to God a portion of that which God has given to us to steward. We give as an act of spiritual discipline to free us from the love of money. We give as a demonstration of faith that God will provide for us. We give because it is from our provision that God intends to provide for the mission of the church and the family of the church. That's the first paragraph. Um, if you go to the next paragraph, the first line is, and we need to pay the bills. So the first paragraph is the theology behind it. 
But, but let me just point out the practical nature as well. If you pick up a bulletin and you open it up, on the bottom left, you'll see a section that says for online giving and go to CLG online because you can give online if you don't give in the mornings. But you'll notice it gives you our offering every week and it tells you what our budget is every week. Then at the bottom, it'll tell you what our offerings are year to date and it'll tell you what our budget is year to date. You might note... Last week, we were a little over $2,000 under budget for one week. Our year-to-date offering, we're about $11,000 under budget uh, from the time that this fiscal year started. I know month of May, um, we were $3,000 under for the month of May. I don't tell you this to scold you. That's not my point. I, I tell you this because for the enterprise of the church to continue. It's true for any church, right? But this, that includes this church. For the enterprise of this church to continue, we got to make budget. And that's, we rely on your generosity for that. Uh, we, we rely on giving. And so, um, I'm going to say this very plainly. We need you to be giving to the church. We need more than you're giving now. You could talk with the deacons about the budget. You could see exactly how we're using your money. Trust me, no one here is getting rich off of your contributions. And we've got a good uh, group of leaders in this church. Nobody here wants to get rich off of your contributions. But we love the ministry we do here, and this ministry is funded by your generosity. So I would just encourage you, be praying about this, about what it looks like um, to just before God say, what do I need to be giving? And, and let me just encourage you with the prayer once again. If you're sitting here wondering, I wonder why my neighbor who I know lives there and has these things and has this kind of job, I, I wonder why they're not giving more. You need to let your neighbor go. That's going to be between them and God. This is a, a time for you to go, no, I, what can I do? If, if this is my church covenant family, um, what can I do to help the church flourish? In, not in every way, but in this case, particularly financial. And that brings me to my last point, and that is that in giving back to God, we reorient our hearts. Because the practical side is your generosity helps us keep the doors open and the lights on. But back to the spiritual side, I believe God commands us to be generous and demands oversight of our money not so that a particular church can get rich off of it, but it's, number one, for the furtherance of his kingdom, but number two, for our good, because God knows the power of money. God knows what it will do to us. So when we give back to God, we reorient our heart. So the New Testament does not mandate an amount of our money to give back to God. If you go by Old Testament standards, you'd end up giving about 30% if you want to go old school tithing. We often throw out 10%. Uh, honestly, I think that's not a bad place to start in terms of discipline. Just this rhythm of our lives, uh, think of it as a spiritual discipline. We sometimes think of fasting as a spiritual discipline or praying. I think setting aside the first fruits of our paychecks is an act of spiritual discipline because it orients our hearts in a particular way around our money. And I think that you'll find over time is that if you do this as a part of your life, as money comes into you and into your life, you'll begin to more and more think, I wonder what I can do with this. 
I wonder who I can bless with this. I, and there becomes this excitement about being able to take the wealth that God has given us, whatever that looks like, and pay it forward in the kingdom of God and for the service of God. So I think it's important as a spiritual discipline. C.S. Lewis once said, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we want to do but cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. Now, that's not Bible. That's C.S. Lewis. But it reminds me of a verse where David said, I will not give a sacrifice to God that costs me nothing. So if I'm going to sacrifice my money to God and to the kingdom of God, it has to cost, I have to feel it. Listen, I could give a quarter to anybody in this room right now. None of you are impressed by that. Right? Yeah, giving you a quarter means nothing to me. Well, it would, if, I, if you go, how about I give somebody $100? Settle down. Right? If, if what we are giving is not making us uncomfortable, I, I think we haven't yet found the heart of God on this. I think we are intended to be, as part of the rhythm of our life, put into situations where we recognize money is not our Savior. I'm going to need God's provision in my life because if I'm going to help people, oh, and it turns us to prayer, it turns us to God, okay, God. I want to help this person. I am trusting you now to take care of me because I'm not sure my bank account can. I, I think that's got to be a part of the rhythm of our life to free us from the power of money. So I think God intends this rhythm of generosity for our good to free us from greed, to free us from fear, to free us from envy. It, it's for our good. It'll benefit the church. It'll benefit the work of God, but it will do a work in us as well. And then finally, there's other things we give. We can give our time. We can lend stuff to people. Our presence, all of these things are things God has given us. I have had people bless me so tremendously in my life with just letting me borrow things. I remember one time, um, Sheila and I had planned to go down to Alabama and Florida, I believe it was, to visit our families. And right before we left, we had van trouble. And we're like, what do we do? And another family in this church said, I use our van. Seriously, we're going to put a lot of miles and wear and tear. That's fine. Can we pay you for it? Nah, we don't need it right now. So we used somebody else's. We're going to be calling you up again this Christmas. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, that's, that's a way to help people too. Your time and your presence figuring out what it looks like. Um, if you're a good listener, that is a gift. That's a wealth that you have. What does it look like to give that gift to others, even if it costs you? It'll cost you time. It might cost you emotion. It might cost you a lot of things. But what does it look like to give back to others on behalf of God as a, as a reasonable act of service of giving back from our wealth? So one thing we could talk about in Message Plus afterwards um, and if any of you are visiting, it's just a time to get together where we talk about the point of, of the message, is to talk about what it looks like to give from the wealth we have in a way that honors God and builds his kingdom. And, and I don't want to let any of us off the financial hook this morning. 
Uh, and I, I hate I hate my own sermons sometimes. I, you know, Sheila and I, we continue to wrestle with how generous can we be and still be good stewards because we have, I have a family I'm responsible for. That's a godly thing too. But our, our, what does it look like to um, un, be uncomfortably generous in the Weber household? Um, Sheila and I, with our own different reasons, we resist that. It's part of our nature that is in the process of being transformed so that we, we, we want that aspect of our life to reflect the heart and mind of God. Um, I, I don't think we're there yet. I doubt you're there yet either, so we're all in the same boat. So, so that's my challenge this week. Be praying, thinking, studying, talking with other Christians in community, whether right after the service or just getting together and going, listen, let's, let's talk about money and stewardship as a Christian. I don't want it to have power in my life. I don't want it to be an idol. I'm not sure I fully understand what God is calling me to do with the wealth of my life. Please wrestle with it in community. That's why we're here. Wrestle with it in community with people. Talk about what it looks like. I've talked before. I'm glad I'm the only class after the message. Uh, I've talked before just about this idea that the Bible continues to build this vision of community on this side of heaven that's meant to give us a foretaste of heaven. We've talked about love. We've talked about generosity. We've talked about purity. We've talked about all these things. And I think what the Bible wants us to do is start thinking about this and go, you know what it would look like if we lived in a church community where this characterized all of us? Oh, that's fantastic. That's city on a hill territory. In a, in a broken culture, the more we reflect as a community the wholeness that God brings us as he transforms surrendered lives so that our hearts and minds reflect the heart and mind of Christ, uh, that's, uh, that's good stuff. That is good stuff. And I love that we've been walking into this as a church community, and I look forward to walking into this part of it with you as well. Lord, I am grateful that you're a God who provides. It's hard to believe that you made us stewards uh, with all our, our pettiness and our selfishness and our, uh, with all these things, your plan is to give us things to steward. That's amazing. But you never call us to do something without equipping us, so I know that through the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of your word, and the community of your people, Lord, the equipment is there for us. So I pray that you give us the boldness and the wisdom and the humility to, to find your heart and mind in this area of our life. And may that transform us into your image. May that free us from the other idols that compete for our attention. And Lord, may your kingdom flourish and may your name be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.